Hello. And welcome to another episode of Saturday the 14th. I am Maggie. And I'm Maddie. And we're here today to talk to you about cats. Non-stop cat talk. All cats. Especially orange boy cats. We've actually ended up talking about cats a lot on this podcast. I mean, as someone who has a giant tattoo of a cat on her arm, I'm okay with that fact. I mean, yeah, I feel like I talk to you about cats a lot in general just because of how strongly you feel about cats. I do. But I feel like cats show up in a lot of horror movies. They do, and this is no exception. No. Um, We're here to talk to you about Alien today. I love this movie. It's really good, and it has the most charismatic cat actor. It really does. A big boy named Jones. Jonesy! And everyone cares so much for this cat that they actually, like, put themselves in danger to save this cat. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I love it. Like, it is very heartwarming. Someone dies because they're looking for the cat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a little sad when you think about it, but I'm happy that everyone was invested enough to go back and... Like, it's not Jonesy's fault. I think I've actually mentioned this on a previous episode, but this is the perfect time to say it. When perfect I saw this movie when I, was, <laughs> when I was younger, um, I didn't really care if any of the people died, but I made my mom tell me whether or not the cat died, because all I cared about was if the cat survived. My mom was like, yes, the cat survives. And I thought she might be lying to me, but she wasn't. Jonesy makes it out alive of this movie. He does. He's such a good boy. Apparently he doesn't die until the timing around the third movie, and it's only mentioned in the film novelization of Alien 3. That, and I think he dies of like old age or something like that. I reject this canon, and I believe that Jonesy lives forever. To be fair, he's frozen for 57 years between the events of movie one and movie two. That's a good point, yeah. So uh, he lived a long time. That's true. Long so, live Jonesy. Yeah. Jonesy forever. Um, I do think it's funny that we both have, like, childhood memories related to this movie, because I think I briefly mentioned this at the end of the last episode when we talked about that we were going to be doing this episode. Um, This is the first horror movie that ever scared me. Like, it's the first horror movie I ever saw any part of, because my parents, like, didn't really, they don't really watch horror. Mm -hmm. And, like, even if they had, like, I would not have been allowed to see horror um, in general. But we were at a family get-together at my aunt and uncle's house, and Alien was on some channel, and it was just on the TV. And I walked into the room during the chestburster scene. Oh, no. And I like was like, oh, what's this? And the thing came out of the chest, and I was like, goodbye. And I like dove behind the couch <laughs> to hide because I was so afraid. Um, I'd like never been scared by a movie before. This is like the first one that ever really got me. Something similar like that happened at my grandparents' house. Um, but my grandparents lived across the street from me growing up. And uh, we were at that house, and at some point I walked in, and Child's Play was on, and I was scarred forever. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> um, this, I think, was on the earlier side for me, too. My mom loved horror movies, and she loved Alien. She always told me that she thought Aliens was a better and scarier movie, but I've still, to this day, never seen it. I meant to watch it before talking about it today, but alas, I It can asleep. be hard to find time to watch multiple movies. Yeah. I also didn't watch any of the sequels. I am trying to watch more horror in October, though, so... I should do that. I've been working my way through Penny Dreadful, oh, which is actually yeah. pretty fun. I've heard really, really good things about Penny Dreadful. I'm about halfway through season two, and I'm really liking it. I'm going to have to check it out eventually. Season one's really good. I mean, it has, like, it's not perfect, but it's, uh, like, there are a couple things I'd probably change if I were making it. Okay. But it's enjoyable. All right. I did just sign up for Shudder. Oh, I used to be a member of that. You see, I was too for like a little while, and I think that they've improved it. Because I've heard that, yeah. When I first signed up, I was like, amazing, a horror like streaming service this is all that I want. And I was just so disappointed by what I found on there. I was like, this isn't, like, it wasn't recognizable stuff. It was all like really smaller stuff, which yeah, is interesting, but like, I don't know if to me it's worth the money. Um, and then I recently like went back and I talked to a friend who'd signed up for it, and I know like Shutter has a bunch of original stuff as well. Um, and I really just think they've expanded it. They've gotten more rights. And it's only $5 a month. This is not an ad for Shutter. I know. We don't have like ads because an no ad. one is paying us to do this podcast. But <laughs> No, we pay money to make this podcast. We do it for the love of the all love of, of you the... listeners and the yeah. love of horror movies. Um, but yeah, so I finally signed up for it and I'm really excited about it. And I, I started watching um, The Changeling from 1980 with George C. Scott, who was oh. actually in Firestarter. As the creepy, uh, potentially fake Native American yep. monster guy. Um, 
and I, I got a little bit into it and I was distracted and I, I had to stop it. But I think they actually have a deal it. to uh, have the TV show Nosferatu on it. Yes. Too. Yeah, they do. Or NOS4A2. Yeah, with Zachary Quinto. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I love him, so I'm very excited. I didn't know he was on that. Until I listened I saw, to the, like, the first poster. half of that audiobook and it was really good. I maybe got two thirds of the way in on a road trip, but then we finished our road trip. Oh, yeah. And it was on Paul's Audible account, not mine, and so I never finished it. <laughs> That's Joe Hill, right? Yeah. Yeah. Runs in the family, man. It does. Yeah. You know? Isn't that why he has, like, he's using a different name and some people yeah, just buy it? Because they don't want to be like, he's Stephen King's son. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, back to outer space. Right. The stuff that we're supposed to be talking about. Where no one can hear you scream. No. What a good tagline. Yeah. It it's a really great tagline. Is. It was like a random copywriter who came up with it, too. It's perfect. Yeah. It's really oh. well done. Um, but this came out in 1979. It did. And as I'm sure you can guess, it's a sci fi horror. Um, yeah, um, really good, solid sci-fi, and also a really good solid horror. Which I read I, that was actually it originally was super gory too, and they kind of got in trouble for that, and so they had yeah. to cut out a lot of the blood. And yeah, that's actually uh, something I want to talk about a little bit later because, um, yeah, I guess it was kind of a difficult thing for Ridley Scott to figure out how to make it scary without making it gory, and he found a very uh, he did a good job, interesting source and a. Yeah. delightful source of uh, inspiration for that, which we'll get into in a sec. Um, um, obviously, this was directed by Ridley Scott, who we've mentioned already a handful of times. Yes. Um, it was written by Dan O'Bannon, who was actually... I read several interviews with him, and it seems like he was very involved in the process, which is not always the case with film writers. Yeah. So that's cool. Um, and it stars our queen, Sigourney Weaver. I love her so much. Fellow tall woman. Yeah, she's just so good in everything she does. I feel like I have a Ripley costume in me for, like, a future Halloween. Oh, my Halloween. God. Yes. I just... I was her Ghostbusters character last year, uh, so yeah. I can't... I mean, I could, but I'm not. But I will. You better. I and will. then make Tim be the xenomorph. Yes. Oh, my God. But he's or, or Jonesy. Oh, my God. Wait, that's even better. <laughs> Just give him a giant orange cat costume. Perfect. In addition to Sigourney Weaver, who is obviously the best thing about this movie, other yes. than Jonesy, um, it also stars Tom Skerritt, John Hurt, Ian Holm, Veronica Cartwright, Yafet Koto, and Harry Dean Stanton. And then the alien... Um, who I feel gets off the like left off of this list too much uh, is a I think Nigerian actor named Bolaji Badejo. Oh yeah, and he's super tall and super yeah, he's like skinny. seven feet tall. Yeah, and I uh, was reading about how Ridley Scott um, originally didn't want to use like or make the xenomorph a puppet. He wanted to do it with like animatronics. He didn't want it to look human at all. And then he met this guy, and he's like, oh yeah, that could work. Yeah, I guess one of the issues that I forget if it was Dan O'Bannon or Ridley Scott who was talking about it was that um, Balaji Badejo, when he moved, was very graceful. Mm. And they wanted that same sort of like grace in the alien, but then the suit was so big and clunky that like it Not didn't, super like, and he doesn't move a lot. Like you don't see him move around all that Not much. Not like at all until like the very end. Yeah. So they, they just decided to incorporate it into like the design. So like it has a graceful air to it, even though it's not actually like physically that makes graceful. Sense. Yeah. Um, the budget for this is a little bit higher than a lot of the ones that we've talked about. This it was like a pretty big budget movie. To be um, fair, they built an entire spaceship for this movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, like it definitely went to good use. Yeah. Um, but it had a budget of about between ten point seven and eleven million dollars. And then yeah, it made a. This is a big. There's a big gap. In... Yeah, I'm not a hundred percent sure where on this. It could be a. Uh, it could be just a couple different sources. It could be that one includes a home box or like includes. Um, home entertainment while the other one is like specifically box office but it made in between 100 and 200 million dollars which is not bad not at all and i mean it's also one of like the most iconic horror movies of all time oh without a doubt you know so uh let's get into it so it starts with the commercial spaceship called the nostromo and it's on a return trip to earth with a bunch of different people on it there are like seven of them total i think yeah and they're all sort of in like they're like frozen. They're in like a suspended stasis. stasis. Yeah, um, because it's a long trip and it's through space, and you can't have like so much food and stuff on the on the. Um, Some of that's been craft. used a lot. You see that like in a uh, passenger. Yeah. You see it in um, Doctor Who episodes and yeah. stuff. Like it's a very common theme. That I think this I mean, popularized. Yeah, I think it makes sense in terms of like how space travel would be possible. Oh, like you're gonna have to, you know, suspend some animation in order to be able to get all that distance. Um, and so on the ship, there's uh, Captain Dallas, Executive Officer Kane, um, Warrant Officer Ripley, 
navigator Lambert, science officer Ash, and then their two ship engineers, Parker and Brett. And so what happens is the ship's computer, which is named Mother, which isn't creepy at all. I love it. Um, wakens the crew. Yes. Because she's like, yo, we're getting a weird distress signal from a neighboring planet. Let's go check it out. Right. And first when they wake up, they don't realize that they're not like almost home. Like they yeah. think they're like back at Earth. They're ready to get paid yeah. and all that. Um, and they don't initially even want to uh, go investigate the distress signal. But they find out, like, they're going to have to forfeit all their money if they don't. Right. Because it's, like, a, a company policy. If there's a distress signal, they have to go check it out. Which is honestly a good rule to have. That's good. Yeah. Um, so they go and they find the moon that they're getting the distress signal from. And they land. And it's a tough atmosphere. It's very cold. Yeah. It's very, like, the air is not hospitable. They have to go out in these big, huge, bulky suits. And they do that. And, um... A couple of people have to stay back and repair the ship because it gets a little damage in the landing process. Right, yeah, it's a tough landing. Um, they're like their shields are partially down. Some of their landing gear, I think, is damaged. And so Parker and Brett, who are the two, um, it's Yafakoto and uh, uh, Harry Dean Stanton, um, are like the two sort of. They're funny. They're like kind of assholes. They're really and they're silly. like giving them like these estimates of how long it's going to take. And Brett's like, oh, it's going to take like 17 hours. And Parker's like, it's going to take us 28 hours to do this job. Like they're really, you know, they're, they're kind of assholes. But yeah. they, they also were not getting paid as much as everybody else. So yeah, they're not that's happy about fair. that. Um, and so Ash and Ripley stay on the ship um, doing other work around it. And then Dallas, Kane, and Lambert head out to like search for the signal. Yeah. And while... So they they have the transmission and they they think that it's like a, a distress signal, right? But they don't know exactly what it is because the ship can't really seem to interpret it. So Ash has been trying to like run it through Mother and see what it is. And Ripley decides that she's also going to try. And so she puts it through the system and she realizes that it's a warning. It's not yeah. actually a distress signal. So she tries to call them back and tell them that we should all get out of here. Right. And she gets through to Ash and she's like, I'm going to suit up. I'm just going to go out and like find them and, you know, bring them back or let them know. And Ash is like, well, by the time you get out to them, like they're already going to know it's a warning or they're already going to know what's going on. So there's really no point in you getting all the way out there and like putting the suit on. She's like, okay, I, I guess. And so she You're like right. stays that is in. What happens. She wants to warn them, but can't. Right. Um, and so meanwhile, uh, the group who's out exploring, they find a whole bunch of alien eggs that are really, like, coolly lit up. Yeah, it's like a – they go, like, down into this cave, and they're, like, under, like, this fog, and there's, like, these little, like, egg pillar things. It's very, very strange. Um, but Kane gets close to one. He goes to, like, touch one. Yeah. Before he gets, like, touched by one, they go in, and they, like, find – what looks like a crashed ship, basically. Oh, yeah. Because there's this whole center part with an alien inside, like a skeletal alien in there. And it's got, like, the head, like, that everybody knows, like, H.R. Geiger, like, alien shape. Um, but it's, like, a skeleton. And so they're like, okay, this is weird. Like, something happened here. And then they go and they find the eggs. And they get close. And they realize that one of them is alive. And then, yeah, it, Kane, like, puts his face close to it to take a look. And it, like, attaches to the front of his and helmet. it shoots through his helmet. Yeah. And so he's knocked out. And it's, like, stuck to his face. So uh, they carry him, Dallas and Lambert, together back to the ship. And they're like, yo, let us in, let us in. Like, he has this thing attached to him. And Ripley says, no, not right. going to do that. Uh, he is just, like, you're supposed to have a 24-hour quarantine if something like this happens to you. Uh, he can't come in. Which is, honestly, really solid leadership. Like, yeah, they're in a bad place. And, okay, it probably won't be good for Kane. But, like... She's right. I mean, she's obviously right based off of everything else that happens in this movie. But, like, obviously, like, it's a difficult decision for her to make because, like, she clearly, like, everyone on the ship seems fairly close when you see them, like, talking, hanging out. Yeah, they feel like they're all friends. Like, she obviously likes Kane, but, like, you can't just bring an alien life form back on your ship without, like, doing any checking on it like that's not safe at all and this movie proves why right and honestly i think that it's shitty of dallas to be like let us on i'm in charge and she's like no i'm in charge because you're not on the ship so sucks to suck but like she's right she's she so right. right like it's the obvious choice and then ash fucks it up by letting them on that's like he ash opens the door just sucks ash is the worst as we will discuss yes <laughs> um and so so like kane is unconscious and they put him up in like the hospital bay 
Yeah, in like the science ward or whatever. Yeah, uh, which is Ash's territory. He's the doctor. So this creature is like attached to his face, right? And there's a tail that's like wrapping around his neck. And like into his throat. Yeah, and um, it's feeding him oxygen. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually keeping him alive right now. And so they can't just like force it off. They don't know what'll happen. Right. But he seems like he's in a coma or paralyzed or something like that. Like it's done something like that to him. Yeah. And they try to like cut like it's it has like these finger like they look like human fingers attached to like a weird spider. Oh, like kind of like a crab. Yeah. And so it's like wrapped around his head, um, like back towards the back of his head. And they try to cut one of the fingers off and it bleeds this acid that eats through like three decks of the ship. Yeah. It just goes and goes. And, and they're like, they did this. So that way uh, they had a good reason why people just wouldn't shoot guns at the aliens. Yeah. They're like, why not just have guns everywhere? Just right. Like shoot them up. And they're like, okay, we need a reason for that. The reason is. And it's a really good reason. Blood. Yeah. Because they like immediately are like, shit, like this could damage the ship. Like this could, if it eats through enough levels, it can make the ship unusable. So, yeah. and they can't, cut away from it while it's on his face because it'll just kill him. So they're like, okay, that won't work. Um, And eventually it just sort of detaches on its own. Yeah, they leave it and they come back and it's just dead on the floor and it's off of his face. Yeah. Kane is like seemingly fine. He doesn't really remember what happened. But but... it like goes away, like skitters off. But then they find it dead. Right. Um, Yeah, it's found dead at some point. Like, But there's like a creepy scene where like they go in to check on him and it's not on his face anymore and he's breathing. And they like look around for it and it like drops down from the ceiling onto I think um Ripley's shoulder mm. and she's like freaking out and then they get it and it, it dies um and so Ash is supposed to be like researching the alien to see what its deal is and one of the things that they find out is that as it sheds its skin it sheds its, its skin to get bigger and every time it sheds its skin it's replaced with like a thick silicone like exterior so it makes it really really tough and like really basically indestructible so it has a silicone outside and acid inside, That's which is, cool. like, not great. <laughs> um, but, I mean, everything seems like it's okay now. No one's too worried. Yeah, Kane wakes up. He's All like, well. They go drink and party together. Right. He's like, and, that was uh, weird. He's not f- feeling awesome, necessarily. Yeah. But he seems okay. Yeah, so they have, like, a dinner, and it's supposed to be, like, their last dinner before they're, they're going to go back into the stasis. Yeah. But they're like, well, Kane needs to eat something because he's been through all this shit. So, like, we'll give him a dinner, and then we'll go back. And then, uh, <laughs> uh, it turns out Kane is not all good and dandy, like it seems. No. So they're, like, joking around and fooling around, and people are making jokes about how bad the food is and what they'd rather be eating, which I think is supposed to be a pussy joke. Because <laughs> it's a ship full of mostly men. Yep. Um, and as Kane is eating, he starts to, like, cough and choke and convulse. He goes down on the table. His back... On the, on the table and yeah. his chest up. And then uh, a little friend comes out to say hello. And it busts on through and it screams and it runs away. And there's a lot of blood. I gotta be honest, it's a scary scene. Um, the running away part when it screams and runs away is kind of funny. It is kind of funny. And I think it's in part, have you seen Spaceballs? No, I'm not. There's a scene. I mean, at some point in my life I have. I just yeah. don't remember it really well at all. There's a scene and I think it's actually also, it has John Hurt in the scene, who is the guy who plays Kane in the movie. Um, where, like, the same thing happens, like, an alien busts out of his chest, and then he puts on a little hat and cane and sings the, hello, my baby, hello, my darling, hello, my ragtime gal, and, like, does a dance. So that is the only thing I can ever think of when I see that scene. That's amazing. Because it really, I mean, it looks exactly the same, and then it, like, runs off at top speed, which is honestly funny. Um, no, I think I've seen clips from it. I don't think I've actually seen the entirety of Spaceballs all the way through. It's, like, a fun. I feel like I would remember that scene. Yeah. It's a good movie. But anyway, uh, Kane's dead. Yes, uh, that's a bummer. Very, very done. Um, so very bloody. Like, okay, <laughs> we have to figure out where this alien is because there's like a fucked up monster alien on our ship that bleeds acid and wants to kill us all. Yep. So that's bad. So uh, they're trying to locate it. They use like tracking devices and they have like nets and flamethrowers and stuff they're ready to attack it with, which also like you bleed when you're attacked by a flamethrower. I don't know why that, I don't know how that affects the whole acid issue. Yeah, um... That's a good point. I don't know. Maybe they're hoping that it can just sort of... Burn the acid? Does acid burn? I don't know. I don't really know what their long-term plan well, is. Well, they've decided that these uh, electric prods and flamethrowers are going to solve the solution that bullets can I guess the electric prod would work. That would. you can shock something to death without it bleeding. Yeah. No, theoretically. That's so true. that's fine. Um, and at one point, they actually think that they've cornered it. But then, surprise, it's Jonesy. And it hisses, and he runs away. 
Yeah, he's really good at popping out and scaring. He's great. And so the cat runs off, and um, I think it's Parker and... It's uh, Brett and, and Parker, I think. Yeah, Brett Parker and Ripley are, like, at the cat. Um, or, like, at the place where they find the cat. And so it runs off, and Parker and Ripley are like, why did you let it run away? He's like, well, it's just the cat. And they're like, yeah, but, like, we're using this machine to track the alien. We're just going to keep getting false positives if the cat is around on the ship. Yeah. Like, you have to go find it so we know where the cat is. And Brett's like, okay, fine. So Brett goes to go find the cat, and he follows Jones into a huge supply group. Yeah, and there's a weird scene that makes me very uncomfortable, where there's water dripping down from the ceiling. There's a lot of water. And he just, like, rubs his, like, he puts his head back up to it and just, like, smears it all over his face. Like, he's rinsing his face, but it's, like, gross shipped water coming from a storage hold, which is disgusting to me personally. I mean, it's supposed to be, like, a really beat up, like, commercial, like, rig, you know? It's not supposed to be, like, a nice quality spaceship. Right. Like, I had a shitty car when I was in my early 20s, and if it started leaking water, I wouldn't rub that water all over my but face. imagine if it started leaking water and it was the first time you actually like had water on your face in a hot sec because you've been asleep in that same car for who knows how long years, I still maybe? don't think I would do it. I don't know. I mean, listen, he's obviously a more chill guy about grimy stuff because he's like a spaceship mechanic, yeah. so that's fine, whatever. He knows but exactly how clean or dirty that water that's is. That's true. Um, but as he's going around... Uh, the alien also starts to drip like goo on his face and then like yeah it's like petroleum jelly or something like that yeah uh is what it looks like i think that's actually what it is too yeah and it gri- it grabs him and it takes him away Goodbye. and he finds like the um the husk yeah so it's gotten much bigger it's not like the little thing that bursted out of the chest anymore like it is way nope, bigger than it, it grows used to up be. real fast don't they grow up so fast oh they do um but yeah he's dead yeah, so they're like, okay, we got to find this thing because this is very dangerous. Um, they're like, why the heck aren't we finding him? Like, what's going on? They realize he must be in the air duct. It's true. And so Dallas is like, here's my idea. I'll go into the air duct with a flamethrower, and then I'll chase it out to an airlock, and then we'll shove it out into space. Which, I mean, not a bad idea, theoretically. Yeah, and this is actually, I think, Ripley's idea, right? Or Ripley continues the idea later on. Yeah. Um. Which I guess it could be, you know, it could, it could be worse. And so he's, like, crawling through the air ducts, and they find it on the system. And Lambert's talking to him, and she's like, it's right there. Like, you should see it. It's coming towards you. And he's like, I see nothing. He's looking all around. There's just yeah. nothing there. And then he finds some goopy goop. Oof, not a good sign. Nope. And then he gets murdered by an alien. Pretty quickly, yeah, before he even has a chance to flamethrower it. Yeah. Throw flames at it. Um, you mentioned to me at one point that there was going to be a scene in which Ripley hooks up with another uh, crew member. Yeah. Was it Dallas? I think so, but I'm not 100% sure. It also might have been Lambert. Not Wow. Uh, it might not have been uh, Ripley. I know originally oh, there was going... you mean it would have been Lambert? No, who no, would... no. I was like... <laughs> Sorry. I did not get that vibe, but okay. I don't know if it was Ripley or if it was Lambert who was supposed to be in the sex scene. Okay. But there originally was going to be a sex scene in this movie... And then they were like, you know, that doesn't really add anything. It wouldn't Let's not have. do that. But I kind of felt like there was a little something-something between Dallas and Ripley. I, that might have been. I kind of, was. I don't know. Um, but then they ended up using that idea in Prometheus of like, yeah. uh, I guess Ridley Scott's idea was like, hey, there are seven people in space for a really long time, and there's men and women. It's boring in space. Chances are people are going to end up having sex. Yeah. So, uh he wanted to include that, but then didn't make sense for this movie because, like, this movie takes place over the course of, like, a couple of hours. Right. It's not a super long time, and there's an alien loose on the ship But then for Prometheus has a bunch of, like, free time. You actually see them living their lives on the ship, which is okay. why it makes sense more. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he gets murdered, and uh, Lambert is like, let's get the fuck off of this ship. Which, like, good call. Yeah, she wants to go in the escape pod, but the escape pod can't hold four people. Right. And there are four of them left right now. So, and now Ripley's in command because her two higher officers are both dead. Yep. So she's like, okay, we're going to continue this plan that uh, Dallas put in place, and we're going to get this alien out of here. So Ripley can now access Mother because she's the commanding officer. And we know that Ash has been sent some sort of secret message. Right. And Ash is weird in the first place because, like, he wasn't supposed to be the science officer on this trip originally. He got, like, 
subbed in at the last moment by the company that they work for. Um, and he is like really dragging his feet on like getting them information about the alien. He's being really secretive. He's about like, mm, yeah, I don't know. It's still like collating. I don't know what's going on. Like we can't figure anything out. And Ripley's like, this is an emergency. You need to have information for us. Yeah. And he just isn't helping them at all. And so she goes to check in and she checks out the secret signal that mother had given to Ash. And it turns out the company has been, has ordered him to bring the creature back at all costs and that the all other missions are deemed optional at this point and the entire crew is expendable yeah and she's like oh fuck that so she goes she's like gonna resolve this problem and so ash comes in while she's reading this and she's like Mm -hmm. hey ash like what did the message say And he's like well didn't you just read it yeah he's she's like why why is this happening and so he like talks about how it was, you know, all alone on this planet and it, like, had to survive and how, like, tough it had to become and all sorts of weird, like, shit about how great the alien is and then, like, locks her into a control room. Yeah, she goes to leave and he closes the door and she's like, open this door and he doesn't. So she goes to leave through another thing Yeah, and um, he does it again. And then he starts, like, beating her up and he rolls a magazine up and then stuffs it in her mouth. Which is the most viscerally uncomfortable thing I can it's imagine. It's uncomfortable, but, like... She could breathe through her nose. It's there is that. The most successful way of trying to suffocate a person. To me, it felt like a very um, sort of symbolic in the sense that, like, that is what the alien did to Kane. Mm. It's kind of like the shoving down I the throat, that, yeah. I guess. But it also felt very, like, it felt like sexual. His hand just would have been better. Yeah. And more successful. It was just and I also a weird just, choice. I couldn't stop thinking about getting like paper cuts on your gums the whole time. Uh, it's a nice, I was it, not it upset me very much. Yeah. But um, Parker runs in while this is happening. And Lambert too, I think. Yes. And they try and stop him. And he like with one hand is shoving this magazine in Ripley's face. One hand like holding off uh, Parker and like hurting him and it's clear like he's weirdly strong yeah but parker eventually gets like the jump on him and like smacks him in the head with like a fire extinguisher yeah something like that big metal thing maybe a canister of some sort and he just starts spurting white it looks like milk yeah actually even before that someone he's talking to yeah he starts sweating he's sweating this white shit yeah so they're like something is fucked up with this guy and so he just like his head falls off and he's spurting all this milk everywhere and he's like spinning out and freaking out surprise he's an android he's an android and like that was his whole purpose was to like they like basically put his head back and like get answers from him like plug him back in they're like what the fuck and he's like i was supposed to help the android and they're like okay great or the alien and they're like great whatever bye and this is part of the time when he's like you know, he he loves the alien and he admires the alien. He talks like, on top of how it's, like, so perfect. And yeah. then he says, like, I can't lie about your chances of survival, but I can give you my deepest sympathy. And Ripley's like, okay, bye. Yeah, and she sets on fire. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, she cuts off the power and she's like, I'm done with this. And then Parker uh, burns the shit out of Android Ash. Yeah. Um, and so they're like, okay, you know what? There's only three of us now. We're going to get off this fucking ship. We're going to blow it up. Yeah. Um, and Ripley gets Jones and puts him in a little box. Yeah, she does. He's like, he doesn't Jones really want to be in the box, but no, make sure but... that Jones is coming with. Yeah. Um, and so then Parker and Lambert are busy like getting everything that's flammable that they can set on fire to like help like make the ship explode or something like that. Or they're getting supplies for the shuttle. I don't yeah. Know. Originally, because there were a bunch of canisters they were just throwing around. So I was like, oh, they're gonna burn those. That's how they make the ship explode. But then they actually make the ship explode by doing like a self. Yeah. I don't fully understand how. But it works. they're like prepping for for they're getting prepping off. for some part of this process. Right. But uh. Surprise, surprise, a friend comes to visit. Yeah, and murders the shit out of them. Yeah, and this is interesting because you don't, you see it, uh, the xenomorph murder Parker, but for Lambert, it just, you see like the tail like come up between the legs, like it's getting closer and closer. Um, but you don't actually see her death and you hear her screaming off camera. Yeah. Yeah, so what they originally wanted to do is, uh, this is a quote from um, Veronica Cartwright, who played Lambert, and uh, she said that Ridley wanted to do a thing where I freaked out and crowded back into one of those lockers that the cat came out of. I sort of crawl up into it and then die of fright, but then that got changed. So she was just going to, like, die, like, of a heart attack or something? Something like that, Interesting. Yeah. That would be kind of interesting to see somebody die of something that's not actually the alien doing anything. Yeah, no, Which I guess it kind of still could be because you don't see her death, really. No, you don't at so, all. Possible. And um, the legs were actually Harry Dean Stanton's legs. Nice. That uh, <laughs> you see with the alien tail. Okay. I mean, they're all wearing basically the same thing anyway, so. Oh, 100%. Um, 
But you can tell because the feet are wearing sneakers and Lambert wore cowboy boots the entire time. Oh, So a fun little Easter egg slash facts from this whole uh, movie. So, okay, so now that everybody else is dead, Ripley is going to take the ship by herself. Like, she's going to take the shuttle by herself. Um, So she grabs uh, Jonesy. Yes, and she has everything set to self-destruct, but she can't get back to the shuttle because of the alien. Yeah, the alien stops her, and she, like, drops the box with Jones in it. Yeah. And, like, runs back. Because the alien's very interested in the cat. Yes. Um, And she tries to, like, stop it from self-destructing. Like, she tries to, like, like... And reset the all process. the cooling stuff and like end the process but you can't after a certain point like yeah so after it hits it. five minutes um until the ship's destroyed it's gotten to the point where it can't be turned back and she like goes and like reaches the lever down do the last because there's like 10 things you have to do she does the last thing at 4 59 she tries yelling the mother like i'm trying to stop it and the yeah. computer's like nope too late you can't yeah but she eventually does manage to make it back to the shuttle yeah so she decides like okay i'm gonna go back and try again and she goes back she finds the box with jones in it and yeah. the alien's gone and so right. she goes onto the shuttle she gets off. The ship explodes with some really 70s special effects. And she's like, fuck, yes, I'm free. And so she goes to uh, flip a bunch of the switches and get ready to put, go back into stasis. She puts the cat into stasis, so he's good to go. Yeah, and then she, like, this is the weirdest part, because she is not sexualized during any other part of this movie. But, like, she takes off her, like, jumpsuit, and she's wearing, like, a white, like, undershirt, like, sleeveless undershirt, And then, like, this weirdly tiny pair of underwear, which is my least favorite part of this entire movie, because, like, it doesn't bother me that, like, she's in her underwear, whatever, she's on her own. It bothers me that they are so uncomfortably small that there is no woman in the entire world who would voluntarily choose to spend months of her life, basically... Wearing these weird fucking tiny underwear. I hate it. It makes me insane. They were obviously picked out by men and they make me crazy. Yeah. That is I my totally see what you mean. only complaint of, like, about this movie. Shots of her like from below. So it just focuses on her butt. Like I know she's a very beautiful woman and I understand wanting to throw in it's a little sex appeal. It's just weird out of nowhere to be like, let's yeah. give you a bunch of butt shots. And they're distractingly small. Like they're like two sizes too small for her. Oh, it's they're weird. definitely way too small for her. It's weird. And I don't know why she would even own those. Yeah. Anyway. Um... Ugh, it's just weird. And I, I get the idea of sleeping in underwear. Sleeping in underwear is fine. Yeah, it's or comfy. Like, I sleep in like a tank top and underwear sometimes, sure. you know? But it's just like that specific choice. Why don't they choice? fit her? Yeah. Um, but as she's sort of getting comfy and relaxing and she's all happy because she's finally free, um, the well, aliens... She's flipping all this stuff and it looks like machinery. And then it turns out that like big black thing behind is not actually uh, machinery, but it's the alien who right. looks a lot like a machine. It skipped its way onto the, the shuttle and it's here to mess up her day and even more. And it's all like kind of curled up and it doesn't have eyes, so it doesn't necessarily like see her. It doesn't have ears. It can't necessarily hear her. Yeah. We don't know how it senses things. It clearly does somehow. Yeah, she notices it. It like puts out like a hand or like something slithers and that's how she notices that it's there. And so... Um, She's like, oh, shit. And so she just sneaks away into, like, a closet. And it, like, kind of, like, peers out. But it doesn't have eyes. It doesn't really. But it's, like, it stretches out. It's clearly, like, curled up. And so she goes into this closet where there's a spacesuit. And she puts the spacesuit on because she has a plan. She does. And she's not a, a smart bad lady. And so she, she puts on the spacesuit very, very quietly and uh, smoothly. Like, pretty impressive. Yeah, she does a great job. And um, she starts, like singing to herself about like my lucky star yeah you're my lucky star and she sang it i think earlier in the movie as well i don't remember but yeah um but she flips like all this air onto the alien is like shooting air out and it starts like freaking out and it gets up from its little hidey hole behind the machines and then she straps herself into a chair and opens the door like from the shuttle out into space yeah and it zaps on out there it goes flying out but first like tries to hold on and then yeah. so she shoots like a uh, spear gun at it which gets it to go and then the door closes but the gun gets caught in it so it's like hanging from the ship in yeah. space and then it gets into like one of the burners on the uh, shuttle and then she lights that shit up and ignites into shit yeah the exhaust and and, and it shoves the alien off into space like it breaks the tether and she's she's had a long day yeah, and she so records, she, like, a log entry that's basically like, fuck you, fuck this company. <laughs> everyone's dead. But she not only does that, but she's put the cat into stasis, right? Yeah. Well, which she means, hasn't the- No, she had put him into stasis. She'd put him oh, in, yeah. Which means that she takes him out of stasis just so she could, like, hold him and pet him while doing her log entry, and then they both go back into stasis. Yeah. 
Yeah. For and the 57-year trip home to Earth. Yeah, which sucks, dude. Oh, my God. I just like that she's like, I've had a long day. I need to pet this cat right now. It's understandable. I also would. So we have um, actually quite a few sources for this uh, this episode. Oh, there's so a many. lot of people who have talked about this, obviously, for a long time. Um, we have an article called Heat Vision, Ridley Scott on the Hard Road to Alien by David Weiner for The Hollywood Reporter. Um, an interview called Ridley Scott, I Wanted to Scare the Shit Out of People, That's the Job, which is the best title I've ever heard for anything. And that's by Tim Lewis for The Guardian. Um, a futurism article called Interview with Alien Co-Creator Dan O'Bannon. Um, an, an article called Dan O'Bannon and the Origins of Alien by David Konow for Tested.com. Um, we have a Cinephilia and Beyond article called Ridley Scott's Masterpiece Alien, Nothing is as Terrifying as the Fear of the Unknown. We have a Reuters.com article called Sigourney Weaver Marks Alien Anniversary. I thought it was a small movie. Um, we have an article called Loving Lambert on alienseries.wordpress.com. Um, we have an article by Ben Popper on The Verge called Alien Covenant Returns to the Theme that Made the Original So Scary, Men Giving Birth. Um, there's a DeviantArt post uh, that is a tribute to Hans Rudi Geiger that we used. I used the book um, Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol J. Clover, which I have talked about multiple times on this podcast, which you should check out because it's a very interesting book. Um, and then there is also a an essay by Robin Wood, the horror film um, writer uh, or reviewer, called An Introduction to the American Horror Film. Um, so check those out if you want. They're all very interesting pieces. Um, there's a lot about this movie on the internet and in books because it is a classic. Um, all right, so let's get into how this movie was made in the first place. Um, so this, as we mentioned earlier, was written by uh, Dan O'Bannon, who is actually has a pretty rich history in terms of working in like major sci-fi stuff uh, in the past. And he kind of got the idea for this when he was working on the movie Dark Star with John Carpenter, which I think that we talked about a little bit when we were talking about, um, I forget which John Carpenter movie, maybe Halloween? Um, I think we've only done the one. Yeah, uh, I think that must have been one of the But this was, it was kind of like a sci-fi comedy, sort of like a goofy take on 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, and they decided that they needed, so, so there's like an alien character, like they call it like the alien mascot um, in this movie that was supposed to be like the friendly spaceship alien. And they didn't really have any budget to make one. So they tried all of these different things. They tried like a guy in a costume, but it looked really stupid and it looked, you know, it was unusable basically. And... Ultimately, they decided to take some rubber chicken feet and a beach ball, and they attached the rubber chicken feet to the beach ball, and then they painted the beach ball, and they decided it, they would just give it, like, a fun personality, like, in the movie, and that would kind of, like, make people look past the shittier parts of the monster or the alien. And um, O'Bannon kind of found it frustrating to have to make this creature on a budget because it wouldn't come out looking like he wanted it to, and so he thought a lot about, like, creating a really, really like, cool monster, something that would, like, have a really interesting alien character involved. Um, and so during this time, he was like, okay, I'm going to write a serious alien movie. And he'd written um, a story previously called Omnivore, which I guess is kind of similar, um, although I think there are, like, more aliens involved. Like, it's a bunch of little tiny aliens or something like that. I haven't seen it. I, I don't know. Um, I don't actually know that it got made because a lot of people liked the script, but the special effects were, like, kind of a Jacob's Ladder situation. Like, everybody was like, this is a great script, but, like, really hard to do. All right, we can't make this. And so he figured, okay, so I'm going to write another movie that has an awesome monster that is still clearly doable by 1970s standards. Yeah. And the quote from the Tested.com article that I like is, um, I wanted to write it, so most of it was clearly a man in a suit. I described it as a tall humanoid, and I limited it to one because Omnivore had dozens of these complex creatures. But it had different parts to its life cycles. I modeled it after microscopic parasites that move from one animal to the next and have complex life cycles. I just enlarged a parasite. I was interested in the biology of aliens, so I wasn't interested in streamlining the thing below interest level just for the sake of economy. And I think he did a great job with that. He did a really good job. Like, yeah. it looks really cool, but it's obviously not, like, it's not CGI. It doesn't take a lot of, like, stuff to make it work. It's a guy in a suit. Yeah, but, like, a really not typical human shaped person in the suit right like, like really an unusually tall, tall really person. skinny yeah um it doesn't look like a person because of the dimensions right but it also looks like it could be right it's humanoid but it's still it's humanoid yeah scary yeah 
It is not a rubber ball covered right. in chickens. It's meat. not like a five nine guy in an alien costume where you're like, that's just a dude. You're like, oh, that's totally. really actually scary. Um, and so obviously H.R. Geiger's involvement is um, major in this movie, and we'll talk about it later. But basically part of the reason that this even got made is that he got H.R. Geiger to help him with the concept art. Yeah. Even before the actual making of the alien or the, like, making of the movie. No, H.R. Geiger was, like, what made this movie. Yeah. He made the creature and made it so scary. Yeah. And so he, like, brought this to the studios and, like, showed it to them. And they were like, yep, we want to do that. Um, And then this side of things I really love. But Star Wars was a huge influence oh, on this. Oh, yeah. And um, it had come out in 1977. This one came out in 1979. And people obviously loved Star Wars when it came out. Oh, absolutely. And no one thought it was going to be such a big hit, so they were super interested in doing more space movies. And so Ridley Scott actually saw Star Wars in theaters, and he was, like, angry about it. Yeah. Um, he, has this, yeah. he has this quote that says, uh, The theater was positively boiling with expectation. I had never seen such audience participation. Because I had a very good time in France doing The Duelist, I was seriously thinking about doing Tristan and Isolde next. So I looked at Star Wars and thought, well, on earth am I even thinking about doing Tristan and Isolde when this guy is doing this kind of movie? And it literally stopped me in my tracks. I was depressed for three months. That's my highest form of accolade, to get very depressed first and then get very competitive. And it worked. I mean, it worked. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I actually, I read this story because of the idea, um, as they were walking around on the ships, I was like, this looks a lot like the Star Wars ships. Yeah. And actually, that's something that I thought was interesting because I saw a quote with him um, where he said that it should be the antithesis of Star Wars and be kind of dirty spaceships in space, used craft that were no longer spanking new and no longer futuristic, but felt like, as we ended up calling them, the freighter in space. But I kind of, that's something I like about the original Star Wars movies is that, like, it feels kind of dirty and old. Like, the Millennium Falcon feels like it's falling apart. Like, a lot of the... Like, the cantina is not sparkly and shiny. And I think that's something that's, like, a problem with the um, the newer Star Wars movies, particularly, obviously, the prequels. Is that, like, everything looks very shiny and pretty. And so that's sort of something that I feel like the two of them almost have in common, is, like, in their better scenes, it looks like well, so I a was used reading, car in space. So the article I read on this talked about how, like, okay, Star Wars was, like, 2001 a space odyssey if things had gone like really well right and then this was made okay this is star wars if star wars had gone horrifically (laughs) wrong and so it went like wrong to right to wrong and so they're all like if uh it's they're all supposed to like the other side of the coin from each other Mm -hmm. and so it's really interesting how that all worked yeah but i I love it i love 70s uh outer space aesthetic i think it's very fun and uh I like the realism aspect to it. And I, I think that that's something that CGI has. And you know, I, I don't want to be like the person who shit talks CGI for no reason because it can be very helpful. But I think that making computer generated sets makes them all look too shiny and pretty and making like a real physical set makes them look kind of like they're it falling apart. Really and cool. I love it. And like, it's, they literally made the entire ship and right. you had to walk through the whole ship in order to get out. And so the actors felt like hella trapped in it the entire time, which actually made them act more like they were trapped in the ship. Right. And I think that that's amazing. And it honestly reminded me of um, Firefly. Yeah, because he did um, the same, Joss Whedon did the same thing. Right. Like Serenity, the the like, um, the like cockpit of Serenity reminds me a lot of the cockpit of uh, the Nostromo. Because they both, like they have that feeling to them where everything is still very physical and there's like buttons, like physical buttons to press in. And like, I, I just like, that love was, that. And that was um, another one where they actually made the entire ship. Right. And I think this was one of the first times they'd ever done that at that scale, which is why the movie was so expensive. Right. Um, but then, I mean, outside of the writer and the director, Geiger is definitely the next biggest part of this movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And um, so he had originally, sorry. I know Ridley Scott initially wanted the French artist Mobius to design the monster, and they went through, like, a whole bunch of different versions, but Geiger's was just, like, the best. Yeah, they tried, like, stuff that was, like, more um, Lovecraftian, stuff that didn't look as scary, stuff that looked more scary, and they tried all these things. I think the original script was a lot more Lovecraftian written and a lot less just, like, straightforward to the point, too. I think they made some changes there, if I remember correctly. Which I think is good. I mean, I think it it really benefits it a lot to just have a scary thing on board, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, Geiger, he's like a surrealist, and he created what he called biomechanics, which is supposed to be like all the subjects that he painted, or a lot of them at least, were supposed to be kind of like a hybrid living organic creatures, but also part mechanical, and that's why like it did such a good job of hiding in the machines, like yeah. you couldn't quite tell it was there. It's because it's actually designed to look like it could be like half 
industrial. Right. And that's something that's really cool about the ship, the alien's ship, which Geiger obviously also designed. Yeah. Is that every single thing that they see in there looks kind of the same. Like it all has the same kind of look to it. They all look like they are part of the same organism, essentially, even though part of it is a ship and part of it is actually like a living creature. Um, And I do think that that makes it more frightening to have that monster on board a ship where you're like, you don't really know where it is. It doesn't really stand out. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's so good. It's so creepy and so like anything else. And there's a quote actually from um, Brian Kissinger, who's a pretty famous artist in the digital online art community. Um, He says that H.R. Geiger didn't just redefine a genre. He created one. His grotesquely beautiful biomechanical visions influenced art across all disciplines. Whether adapted for the screen or for the page, his signature style could be identified immediately. His body of work should be a reminder to all artists to be original and explore beyond the boundaries of our imagination. Yeah, and I mean, it immediately, like, Geiger... O'Bannon brought Geiger's work to Ridley Scott, and it was like, done. That's it. It's so creepy. Yeah, there's a quote by... Scott, that's like, inside of a book called The Necronomicon, there was the alien. I said, it's designed, this is it. And he just like flew to Switzerland to meet H.R. Geiger and was like, please, please come do this. But then they actually made a couple changes because like in that book, the alien had eyes and Geiger was like, no, we got to take out the eyes. Yeah. Um, To make it like, if you don't see like how it sees people, it makes it so much scarier. Right. Um, It's so cool. And Geiger actually, so in addition to designing the monster, he built the monster. Like he made the monster, which is insane oh my God. it is really cool and o'bannon talks in the futurism interview about how like initially the producers kind of like pushed back because he'd never done film work before and he was like no it has to be this guy and so geiger came in and he did it and he made it out of clay and pipes and tubing and veterinary and medical supplies and what he describes as a veritable graveyard of bones oh wow which he doesn't elaborate on which is frightening <laughs> um but i guess he just kept making and remaking the alien like he kept wanting to make it better because he'd never worked on a film before so you know he didn't probably have he a didn't sense know of how the timeline like, and what like, is good enough yeah, yeah when to be done and so basically o'bannon and, and uh ridley scott had to be like we're just gonna leave it now we have to make the movie let's move on to something else what i also love about the face hugger is that it originally wasn't supposed to be like that silicon like yeah. color um or that like nudish color it was supposed to be a different color and then but they actually like poured the silicon and all that to make it and they're like oh that actually looks kind of cool what if we just leave it like it that it is really cool like the fleshiness of it makes yeah, it feel more real definitely really like. but originally it was supposed to be like i don't know if it was supposed to be black like the xenomorph yeah. or what but i think it's better i think it looks really good yeah and i guess the idea of having i mean it was all geiger's idea obviously but the idea of having like a crab like form but with human like fingers around it was something that he came up with which is so Eek. creepy oh my god <laughs> And then um, the cast for this movie. Oh, my God. It was so good. I mean, it's astonishing. Like, Sigourney Weaver getting cast in this, like, objectively shouldn't have happened. Like, I'm glad that it did. But, like, it seems unlikely that it actually happened. Yeah. Because originally they envisioned Ripley as a man. Which I'm so happy they made it a woman. Yeah. And I'm not 100% sure when that switched over. Whether it was just that they realized they had, like, way more men than women, um, or I don't know. I don't know why exactly they made that change, but I love that they did. I think she's an incredible character. And I think for, especially for 1979, like, oh, my God. Yeah, really. Like, that's amazing. And initially, when they decided to switch to having her as a, a female character, Ridley Scott wanted Meryl Streep to play her. That's interesting. I think she could have done it, and I think she would have been great at it, but... Her longtime partner, John Cazale, had just passed away from cancer. And so she wasn't really doing that. Like, she that wasn't sense, taking yeah. new roles at the time. Um, and so she didn't get, you know, she didn't take the role. They decided not to pursue her. And Veronica Cartwright actually auditioned for Ripley as well and thought that she got it because they told her she got cast, but they didn't tell her that she got cast as Lambert instead Aww. of Ripley. And so she went to a costume fitting, and that's how she found out that she that wasn't sucks. playing Ripley, which does suck. So they're trying to find this woman to, like, play this character. And eventually they find Warren Beatty, actually, is the one who recommended to the casting director Sigourney Weaver because he'd seen her in some off-Broadway stuff. Um, And so, like, she came and met with uh, Ridley Scott. And Ridley Scott is, like, 5'9". Sigourney Weaver's, like, 6'1". And had, like, the huge curly hair, so she seemed even, like, taller than she actually was. And she was wearing thigh-high <laughs> boots with, like, big heels. Like, she called them hooker boots. Yeah. Those were her words, is my understanding. And so Not our words. <laughs> so basically, he was like, this is 
the biggest woman I've ever seen. She's like uh, the perfect like action hero female lead, which I love because I am probably about the same height as uh, Sigourney Weaver. See, you just need to start acting in off-Broadway stuff and then you can become an action hero lead. I don't know about that. Maybe. Yeah, done. Easy. Hire me to be your alien spaceship hero woman. Done. I'll Great. hire you, Maggie. Perfect. Thank you. Um, But yeah, it was just really cool that that worked out. Yeah. And then during the actual filming, uh, Ridley Scott, rather than doing like the normal like directing thing where you like talk about your character's backstories and like what they want and like why they're there and all of this stuff, Ridley Scott was like, okay. <laughs> The quote that I love is, I wasn't too popular with some of the actors because I'd say, if it catches you, it's going to take your head off and stick it in a dark place. That's your motivation. Because like to him, it didn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you get onto the spaceship, it doesn't matter why you got onto that spaceship in the first place. It doesn't matter what you want out of life in general. This movie is about literally people just trying to survive. That it's is a horror survival only movie. Thing that matters. Yeah. Um, where they are being hunted. And that's the thing, like, I think if we had more backstory set up, great but there is like none no i don't think you need it i mean you get a sense of like the vibe and some of the dynamics on the ship like the fact that the um engineers don't necessarily get along with like the higher crew because they're kind of treated as lessers even though they're keeping the ship running but that also doesn't really come across like there isn't much time for that to be discussed in this movie because most of it's like oh god there's this thing hunting us what do we do it's literally only brought up as like should we go and get this thing or not should we go and stop and see what's happening on this planet and the engineer guys are like, why are we going to risk our lives? You better pay us our full amount and then are talked into it because you don't get anything if you don't stop. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's not important. You don't really need to know. And also, uh, this is a pretty well-known fun fact, but the cast had no idea. Right. About what was going to happen with the child. Or they didn't have no idea, but they didn't like fully understand the whole They knew like something. I think that what they were told was like something is going to happen at the dinner scene. Yeah. And they weren't told what. But it was almost fucked up. Yeah, because um, the shirt didn't, like, rip properly <laughs> when the chestburster came through. They had, like, all of these, like, all the blood tubes and air tubes and, like, the pop-up thing. And, like, John Hurt is, like, under a fake, like, chest, like, under the table. And it's all complicated. And then the cotton t-shirt didn't rip. God damn it. <laughs> so Ridley Scott had to be like, stop, 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 stop. Everybody get out. We have to fix this. And he, like, razor bladed through the shirt so that the thing could pop out. Yeah. Yeah. It worked out. Yeah. Which is kind of funny, because, like, if he hadn't stopped it in time, it would have, I mean, obviously, it would have probably been expensive to, like, redo that. But also, yeah. it would have ruined the experience for all of the crew. Uh, all right, so we have talked a lot on this podcast about the concept of the final girl. We have. I love the final girl. This is part of the reason I love slashers so much. Um, Ripley is the best final girl. It's hard to even call her a final girl, though, because it's not like she's, like, someone who's being hunted specifically and, like, That's survives true. at all. Like, she is one of a series of people, and then she's, like, trying to – she has a handle on the situation better than anyone else the entire time. Yeah, like, the, the victimization that a lot of people kind of bristle at with the final girl doesn't really apply to not her. Not at all. She is – also, for the 1970s, she is unusually involved in, like, she's very active as a final girl. Like, she handles the situation herself, which is something that we see the year before in Laurie Strode in Halloween, but which wouldn't have necessarily, I mean, I guess they might have done rewrites or something like that. But I, it's not like they came up with the idea based off of Halloween, even though there are a fair amount of similarities between yeah. the two of them. Um but like we talked about, she like at every step of the way is like trying to stop the alien even before anything happens. Like she doesn't let them back in. She tries to warn them at the very beginning. She's constantly like on Ash being like, what's going on? Like, what have you found out? And very early on is like, something's wrong with you. Like, why are you being so weird about this? Yeah. Um, and then manages to like effectively get rid of the alien she's the only person who manages to survive the whole movie yeah and usually like you said uh the final girl is a victim or like a specific target of the uh creature or bad guy or whatever the big bad yeah um and like you mentioned halloween with laurie strode like she was being chased the entire time right she was like actively sought out by michael myers and this it's like she was just one of seven and happened to be the last one alive. Yeah, and that's interesting because, like, in Halloween, Laurie also doesn't start out necessarily as the target. Like, other, like, her friends are killed off before her. But by the time, like, when she catches Michael's eye, then she, like, he chases her down. Well, he's, like, chasing her a little bit. Or not chasing her, but stalking her early Oh, that's in the true, movie. but she goes to the house and he sees her at the house. Yeah. 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 
So um, he's kind of killing people to get to her rather than. That's in, what I think. Yeah, yeah. In this where it's just she's what's left, you know? Definitely. And there isn't too much sexualization of Ripley other than just like the weirdly small underwear and like a couple of butt shots. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, there's even a, a in um, Men, Women and Chainsaws, Carol J. Clover points out that like. While it's clear that like the the mechanic guys don't like her very much, it's not for like sexist reasons. Like they don't want her coming down to like touch their stuff, but they don't want anyone coming down to touch their stuff. And when they do like negatively comment about her, they call her a son of a bitch. They don't call her a bitch. They don't call like they don't use any gendered language with her. They That's really cool. I refer didn't to her that. like yeah, in like the same way that they would refer to any other person on the ship. So like even the weird animosity, they don't really let any degree of like misogyny creep in at all. Yeah, which is unusual for the seventies, unfortunately. It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like any other, you know, final girl, she comes across as fairly asexual. She's pretty tomboyish. She's wearing the like the boots and the um, jumpsuit the entire time almost the entire time. And she has the unisex name, although in this it's her last name rather than like, um, I guess Lori is not, well, Lori used to be a man's name as well. That's true. So there's that. Um, And Carol J. Clover talks about this kind of in combination with like Silence of the Lambs, for example, um, which is sort of the combination of like this, the victim and the hero into this really active final girl, like a um, Clarice Starling character. Uh, they're in fact, she says, protagonists in the full sense. They combine the functions of suffering victim and avenging hero. And I like that because even in Halloween, which again I like, and I think Laurie Strode's a great character, somebody else has to shoot him at the end. That's true. She yeah. doesn't manage to save herself. But by the time you get to Alien or Silence of the Lambs, it's just like these ladies are just like, oh, I'm sorry, does somebody need to like murder a bad guy? I'm here and I'm doing I mean, it. You have like in Friday the 13th, um, I can't remember her name right now, but the that's main protagonist, true. she does cut she, off yeah. uh, Mrs. Voorhees' head. Yeah, that's true. And that wouldn't happen until a little bit later. I guess that was 1980, right? So it was 1980, yeah. So this is all steps in the right direction. And it's all kind of driving us towards this more active final girl. Because when you see something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yes, the main character is a final girl character, but someone else needs to come in and save her. Yeah. Which is not to say that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre isn't important in the overall arc of things because that was actually an influence on Ridley Scott in this movie as well. Um, Because we talked about earlier, there's not a lot of blood in this movie. There really isn't. Um, There was that one scene in the beginning. Yeah. um, With the chest burster. I actually... Earlier on this podcast, when we were talking, I was going to say, like, there really isn't that much blood or, like, blood at all. And then I'm like, oh, shit, chest burster. Okay, there is one very bloody scene. Right. And part of that's that they originally planned on doing it bloodier. And I think they originally actually had more blood. And they had to cut back on some of it because they were afraid of the X rating. Yeah. Um, And so when they were kind of dealing with that, um, Ridley Scott watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, while he was working on this. Um, And he went and he saw it. He saw it on the Fox Studio lot. Um... Um, He said, it was horrendous and it scared the shit out of me. I think I started with a hamburger at lunchtime and I never took a bite. But that was into overdrive and overkill. There's a lot of people eating people and there's a lot of violence. And it's tantamount to blood, I think. What's the difference, frankly? Uh, He says, Toby Hooper did a great job. And it was my challenge to say, how do I get that scary? So, like, you don't have to show blood gushing in every single scene if the rest of the stuff that is happening is so scary. It's, like, basically the same thing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the movies you see nowadays, like, they aren't always that bloody. Or, like, the bloody stuff isn't necessarily what's scary. Like, in Get Out, like... There's very like little no blood. blood. Yeah, mm, the there's end. a little there's blood, a bit but of blood, much. but that's like not the scary stuff. That's like the yeah. yeah, I'm gonna get out and get revenge. That's just like over the course of like an action scene. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Midsommar has one kind of bloody scene. Yeah, Midsommar has a fair amount of blood in it. Oh, actually, it does have there's a like amount. multiple yeah, scenes. Yeah, there are. But, I mean, that's a different. That's more but body. That's horror. also yeah. That's not so much even like the parts where you're feeling uncomfortable and feeling like there's something wrong isn't actually when you see the blood. Like the blood is like the reveal, not the like I'm scared moments. Yeah. Um. In Hereditary, there's, like, no real blood. It's like you don't necessarily need that if everything else is scary. Okay, my examples are not the best. (laughs) But that being said, there are a lot of, like, paranormal movies. Look at, like, uh, Japanese horror movies. Look at, like, The Grudge and The Ring. Yeah. There's no blood in either of those, right? Right. Um, If you look at the whole Paranormal Activity series, there's very little blood in those. Very little, yeah, not until the very end. Yeah, um, but I think there's a lot that can scare you without needing to overtly be like, here is some blood. Look how scary this is. yeah. A lot of those themes kind of come up in some of the scarier classic horror movies, and I think the ones that have aged the best. And one thing that Robin Wood, um, in an introduction to American horror film, talks about is the similarities between Alien and The Thing. 
And the thing didn't actually come out until a few years after Alien, but it was based on Who Goes There, which then was turned into um, The Thing from Another World. And then it's not a remake. It's more of like a reimagining from the same source material. But that was already like a, a thing out in the general consciousness. And I think a big element of the frightening nature of it is that you're so alone, you know, like you're not, you can't run to your neighbors for help like you can in Halloween. And it doesn't work for Laurie in Halloween, but that's still sort of a comfort out there that you could find someone else and they could maybe keep you safe. Yeah. In this, you have to deal with it yourself. Like in the thing, they're in the middle of Antarctica. There is no one else to help them. The only other people near them have already been killed by the thing. And in Alien, like, the only way that she is ever going to be able to get away is if she can get into the shuttle. And then when the alien is in the shuttle, it's like, well, fuck, like now I have to, I can't just run away from the alien. I have to personally kill the alien so that I can be free. And there's also like this sense of like the danger of science sort of in both of them. I know you haven't seen the thing, um, which you should, cause it's so good. <laughs> um, but in the thing, they literally dig the alien up from under the ice. And it like infects a sled dog, which then like moves to the American camp and infects the Americans there. So they only find the alien because they're able to like have the scientific prowess to go to Antarctica and dig through the ice and like get this thing and dig it up. In Alien, you're only able to get the alien because humanity has progressed to a point where they can go into deep space and like go in and find this thing. And then there's like this scientific character in both of them there's a doctor in the thing who like kind of idolizes the monster. And then there is Ash in Alien who sort of idolizes the alien. Um, and so it's sort of like the science figure who thinks that this is like a superior life force. And like the thing that, you know, humans are meant to be um, subordinate to this life force. And so it's kind of like, they're both sort of stories about the dangers of science and the dangers of that. like unchecked yeah. science. Which I think is interesting. I think it's a cool... I mean, obviously, for sci-fi, like, science kind of has to be a, an aspect of oh, it. that's but. super true. Yeah. So, speaking of things that make people scared in new and unusual ways, uh, mm. Dan O'Bannon actually talked about how uh, he mined from the idea of men being pregnant as one of the inspirations. Which I think is so interesting, given the fact that there's a female lead. But she's not the one who gets, like, impregnated. Yeah. Um, but he says, I'm not going to go after women in the audience. I'm going to attack the men. I'm going to put in every image I can think of to make men in the audience cross their legs. Right. Because it is, I mean, birth is such a natural thing. But it's coming out of a man. And yeah. the birth is the most, like, I guess the Traumatic. worst situation possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, it's such a... I mean, since everything is so biological and natural and scientific anyway, it makes so much sense to have it be like a natural thing that's just like not quite. It's natural, but in the least natural way possible. Right. You're like being used as a a host, basically. Yep. Your chest is a womb. Yeah. Good old womb chest. Yep. I mean, to be fair, there's actually a scene in, um, oh, I think it's Prometheus where like a woman literally like gives herself a c-section because she's been like impregnated by one of the aliens Oof. and it was like this weird squid thing inside of her and she like was not supposed to be able to get pregnant there was like a whole kind of storyline about how she was like infertile and then she gets pregnant with an alien baby ah, so like, uh, he eventually uh i guess dan o'bannon doesn't uh didn't write prometheus that's true and i mean there's no reason why it wouldn't go after a female uh, host as well. Like, but it I, is really interesting to yeah. see it just like turned on its head like oh this man is going to be give birth to this alien through his chest. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, and then ultimately it's a woman who has to go toe to toe with it and is like no fuck you I'm not afraid of your and in a lot of ways you see it be the opposite. Yeah. So kind of cool. It is. It's interesting. So join us uh, on Halloween which is when our next episode will be dropping. Um, we are looking forward to it. Uh, until then have a wonderful spooky October. Um, you can check us out on uh, Instagram or on Twitter. Just look up Saturday the 14th podcast. Also on Facebook. And also, we have uh, Instagram. We update sporadically. So we do post on Facebook and you can talk to us there. And that's really fun. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have the Letterboxd app, um, but it is a really fun app. And if you want to see what I am watching, I do watch a lot of horror movies and I log them on there. You can follow me at Maggie Fran. That's Fran with three N's. 
Um, I do not have that, but also I'm not organized enough to track movies that I watch. <laughs> Let's be real. I'm just trying to do something other than keeping a running notes uh, app note about what movies I'm supposed to be watching. Um, and I'm trying to do it that way. I spend all my free time playing video games. Woo! Hey! Hey! All right. Um, so have a great October. We will talk to you on Halloween. Until then, stay spooky. And um, listen, if somebody tries to get on your ship and they have an alien stuck to their face, you are within your rights to say no. Though you might have a uh, insubordinate crew member who disagrees with you. In Check case, everyone's blood type before they get on your spaceship. And if your blood type is milk, don't let them on. Agreed. All right, guys. Be safe. Uh, we'll talk to you later. We love you. Drive safe. Mwah.